Hello everyone, welcome to Go Bold. This episode is part of our Bleeding Edge series, where we discuss new concepts and emerging technologies. So when one hears about unmanned systems, one tends to think about UAVs, or unmanned aerial vehicles, as these have gained a lot of notoriety in recent years. What you don't hear much about is USVs, or unmanned surface vessels, but these two are growing in numbers, and leading the way is the United States Navy, which is currently testing two types of USVs at the Rim of the Pacific exercise, otherwise known as RIMPAC. My guest today is a subject matter expert on USVs, and he's here to speak about their employment during RIMPAC, which concludes today, August 4th, 2022. Before we begin, I want to share that there was some connection issues during our chat, but they do clear up relatively quickly when they occur. So with that said, I really hope you enjoy this episode of Go Bold. Let's roll the music. Hey everybody, welcome to Go Bold. My name is Jody Atariwala and I'm your host. And my guest today is Commander Jeremiah Daly, who is a highly decorated U.S. Navy officer who is currently serving as the commanding officer of Unmanned Surface Vessel Division 1, which is a unit of Surface Development Squadron 1, which is located at Naval Station San Diego. Commander Daly joins us today from Southern California after he's just returned from participating at the Rim of the Pacific exercise, or RIMPAC 2022, uh, which is nearing completion. Commander Daly, welcome to Go Bold, sir. It's great to have you here. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. Thank you. I'd like to start by asking you a bit about your career. What made you join the Navy? You know, that's just one question I like to ask as we start. But ultimately, how did you find yourself working with unmanned surface vessels? Thank you. Um, So I joined the Navy in 1999. I signed up um, and the Navy paid for school. And that was my mechanism to pay for college. And uh, what I originally thought was going to end up being a minimum four-year commitment, go out and, you know, lead a you know civilian life uh turns out being in the navy is actually still a lot of fun and and it it has been for me i've lived in three countries overseas gone on countless deployments and, and and been all over the world um so after 18 and a half years i still enjoy what i do and um I am back in, in the United States uh, for duty. Uh, I've been back uh, a little, little over four years from almost being overseas for 10 straight years oh, wow. um, in the four deployed world. So um, when I was an executive officer of a ship, uh, USS Independence, uh, we were the mine warfare test and evaluate ship for the Navy as that platform for mine warfare. Um, when I transitioned to my command tour, uh, it was you know a little bit of luck and a little bit of diligence on the part of uh, the folks that got me there. Um, and I ended up in a job where not only can I provide value um, from a tactical employment, being forward deployed for so many years and living at the, the sort of tip of the spear, um, but programmatically, I did have a little bit of insight as to the procurement acquisition cycles, um, and, and this, is, this has been a good fit for, for me personally and professionally, and I just, you know, I'm happy to provide value to the Navy still. I love it. So it, it, describe to me, if you don't mind, uh, Commander, 
Unmanned Surface Vessel Division 1, um, which, uh, you know, as we stated, is part of Surface Development Squadron 1. Um, what exactly is your remit? So I am the bridge between the acquisition world within the Navy that whose job is to build platforms and capability and the operational and tactical side of the Navy, which is the fleet. Um, so my unit was created... Uh, to be exactly that, uh, to have warfighters involved in the development of uh, technology and capability so that when it is brought to the fleet, it provides immediate value into the Navy's uh, lethality and uh, interconnectedness and their ability to conduct operations. That's awesome. It sounds like a, an exciting place to be. Um, and it's, it's on the cutting edge of technology, which is super, super cool. Um, so talk to me about the vessels within your division, because I think there's two different types and they come from two, if I understand it correctly, they come from two different, I guess, funding or, or developmental streams. Correct. So the first uh, group of ships, the two, Sea Hunter and Sea Hawk, came from Navy research and development programs over the last eight to 10 years. Um they were working on autonomy and working on different types of payloads, uh, capabilities that can be put on the platforms. Um, that program has been managed and run by uh, Naval Information Warfare Center Pacific for the last handful of years as a program um, underneath of the NAVC Program Office for Unmanned Systems. Um, but they didn't really have a direct Navy unit working with them solely or as their sole purpose, if that makes sense. So my boss's command, Surf Devron 1, was their gatekeeper to the fleet and exercises, but it wasn't Surf Devron's only job, if that makes sense. Sure. Um, so they are purpose vessels uh, made by a yacht company that are built to be unmanned. So there is no water. There are no toilets. It is thinned down to exactly what you need for a ship to operate unmanned. So... Um, interestingly, the ability to drive the ship in and out of port was an afterthought from the researchers and designers. And if you look at the vessels, it looks the, the area where you would drive the ship from looks very different from the rest of the vessel. Well, that is because it was added on after the fact, uh, people were a little scared 10 years ago that a vessel would of that size, 130 feet long, is pretty big, um, would, would be totally unmanned and have no people on it, or you would have a person driving it like a joystick from the side of the shore and people couldn't really get their heads wrapped around it at the time. Uh, so there is a place to drive from, uh, and we drive in and out of port from that place. And, uh, it does look a little different. It has outriggers on the side and it's very interesting looking. Um, it doesn't look like a regular ship. Um, so that's the first kind. Any questions about that? No, no, it, it, no. I think they're, they're super, uh, super interesting ships. And I love the fact that you mentioned about the, the add-on. I think those, that's a, that's a neat little kind of uh, anecdote to, to the ships. Yes, sir. So the other kind was converted from something else. Uh, and it was originally um, started up by the secretary of defense strategic capabilities office. Um, which is an interesting organization whose purpose is to, in my own words, uh, find uh, capability gaps uh, in different areas within the entire DOD and utilize uh, faster contracting mechanisms to bubble up technology to the point where it could be usable in the regular defense acquisition sort of process. Um, so they uh, 
bought two vessels, Nomad and Ranger, which are originally built to support um, replenishment of oil platforms. So it looks like a giant flatbed truck. And it has a little pilot house in the front and then a giant bed on the back. And that's to move cargo from shore to uh, oil platforms or other you know, offshore rigs uh, to resupply them. So they can go pretty fast. Um, and they have some good maneuvering capability. Um, and that's the technology of autonomy and some of the testing for different types of um, capabilities for payloads on it. Um, so the Navy uh, and the acquisition community, same program office, PMS 406, uh, has taken over that program and begun to move the ball forward. Um, so the Navy took possession of the ships in March of this year, 2022. Um, and it is one of the ships as part of the inventory of the Navy as a research and development platform. So those are the other two vessels. So I have four in total currently. Beautiful. And so they're in your division, but have you ever operated them jointly, uh, all four together before RIMPAC of this year? So the answer is no. Um, and, and I think most of the reason why they haven't operated together is because there hasn't necessarily been the opportunity. And my command is the first uh, purpose design command to do something like this. So now they all fall under my umbrella. So I have the ability to integrate them more and cross programmatic levels and um, different other entities within the Navy to utilize their capability across multi domains in, in one singular event. So RIMPACT was, was that opportunity and the first one for us to come across. And it's a big one. So it's awesome that you now have all four vessels under uh, under the division, which allow you that flexibility. Um, oftentimes when we talk about unmanned vessels, there is, and rightly so, there's all the focus kind of put on the, on the vessels themselves. But I'd like to ask you a little bit about the manned element to operating the unmanned vessels, uh, because because it takes people to to still deploy and effectively run these these vessels. So I want to make sure that I give you guys the credit that's due there. Sure. Um, for our vessels, we have the ability to monitor, control, and um, uh, interact with and, and make sure that the vessels are executing their missions, both from ashore, where I have a temporary unmanned operations center that was part of the SCO program in San Diego, mm -hmm. um, I have one being built out here in uh, Ventura County where we're stationed. Um, I ha also have the ability to control them from a float from different platforms within the Navy. Um, so we executed both of those during RIMPAC um, this year, both ashore control and payload management remotely, along with embarking uh, my sailors on board of two destroyers specifically, uh, the USS Fitzgerald and the USS uh, William P. Lawrence, both Arleigh Burke destroyers um, to further work through what manned and unmanned teaming would look like from a future template for a concept of operations for the Navy. I love it. And in terms of like uh, the manned footprint, like the people that are under your command that are helping to operate these ships, uh, you know, how many people does that consist of? So at any one time, I will have a watch floor not a large watch floor, um, somewhere between three to four people. Um, and they could control conceivably all four of the vessels from one room at the same time um, ashore. 
And then a float, it would change based on the tactical situation, um, whether you would have more than one ship working directly for a manned ship or not. We're sort of testing through those concepts and, um, and working through what that sort of future template looks like from an operational standpoint. Um, but we are, we are still breaking ground on using the ships as extensions of sensors um, of the manned platform from an interconnectedness standpoint, tactically. So I love that. So uh, talk to me about the quote unquote ground control station, the, the ability to control these unmanned vessels. Is it, um, is it uh, a proprietary system that is specific to the two different types or is it like a, um, a universal GCS that might control both? So I would say that since the programs were started at different time, um, we have a couple of different uh, contracts with uh, defense industry. And then we have government um, proprietary user user interfaces would be a better way for me to describe it to where we have the ability to control all four of the vessels via one central mechanism. Um, so there aren't uh, disparate uh, abilities with 10 laptops in a room. It is all it can all be centrally managed. So that is just the physical maneuvering uh, safety and navigation of the ships. And then the payloads all vary based on the different type of payload and how it connects with current government sensors and uh, tactical networks. So each one of the payloads is probably a little bit different, but that's by design. And then the maneuvering of the ships themselves and how um, the shore ground-based or a float-based controls them, that's pretty universal. Okay, awesome. And it, so when you talked earlier about the um, about the ships integrating with two of the Arleigh Burke destroyers, um, were they a mix of the small or sorry, of the medium and the large USVs? Or um, tell me a little bit about how, how the USVs were, were utilized during RIMPAC. So uh, both Sea Hunter and Seahawk are of the medium variety. And they were directly being controlled, what we call direct control, on board the destroyers. So they were combined man-on-man team the entire time during RIMPAC. Um, we did some testing with moving control of vessels from ship to shore with that as well, to back in San Diego. Um, but they were still under uh, direct supervision of the vessels while they were out at sea in Hawaii. Uh, for safety. Um, the other two ships, Nomad and Ranger, um, sort of bounce back and forth between shore-based and tactical employment from different vessels. Um, so as an example, William P. Lawrence um, at one point had Nomad, Ranger, and Sea Hunter under her tactical control. Um, and we shifted and tested physical control of the vessels back and forth. But tactically, she was utilizing the payloads and the sensors on board three unmanned ships at the same time, which was pretty remarkable. Hey, everyone. I'd like to take a quick moment to thank our sponsor, Cubic Mission and Performance Solutions. So the promise of AI to enable next generation mission dominance starts with having the right data sets for machine learning and artificial intelligence algorithm development. Since the 1960s, Cubic has been in the business of instrumenting mission-critical training and operational environments to deliver truth in training 
and that is the data sets that help operators understand what happened. Cubic's multi-domain training solutions are joined by SPEAR, which stands for Simplified Planning, Execution, Analysis, and Reconstruction. SPEAR is the next generation multi-domain training common operational picture and common data model which is helping operators spend more time reviewing why things happened instead of just what happened. The SPEAR-derived enriched dataset will power the development of both emerging manned and unmanned teaming capabilities and operator-intelligent assistance by feeding the right data and context to AI algorithms in the next generation of combat systems. Cubic is at the forefront of this technology, and we would like to thank them as a teammate to Go Bold, and we encourage you to visit them at cubic.com. Now let's get back to our chat. You mentioned uh, that all of the different vessels had had um, different types of sensors and payloads. Uh, can you speak to me a little bit about that? Because, And then also, I guess payloads could also include kinetic payloads, because I do remember a test, I believe a year or so ago, where I think Ranger had launched an SM-6 missile, uh, which was a fantastic test. I, th I thought it was uh, really, really interesting. And I'd like to know if anything similar uh, happened during RIMPAC this year. So unfortunately, we didn't have the luxury or pleasure of getting to fire another SM-6 um, that rotates between platforms. Uh, so, but that capability exists today. Uh, unmanned ships have uh, the capability. It's it was still an R and D posture. Um, Congress and the defense and um, the defense department have not, you know, moved forward with having that. Um, but it takes some time to mature the rest of the autonomy of the ship itself and the reliability. So, I I envision that happening at some point in the future. Um, having that as part of the program record from a kinetic capability. Um, but as far as RIMPAC goes, uh, we had all um, non-kinetic sensors uh, on the different platforms. Um, so if you were on the pier with me right now, I would be pointing at Sea Hunter and Seahawk, which were at a very close place at Fort Island in Hawaii. And uh, you could see that there was a toad array uh, on the one. And the toad arrays can detect all, thing, all types of things uh, above and below the surface. Um, and that's, you know, in plain view. Uh, the other payloads uh, look very unassuming, uh, but they are all in the uh, sensory um, and combining with other sensors on manned platforms to provide um, the right blend of tactical uh, data in order to uh, provide targeting information and for us to keep a recognized maritime uh, surface and air picture. So that's that's how I could describe the the other sensors. Um, on board the, the vessels. Awesome. And were there any other types of payloads as opposed to sensors? Yeah. So um, no other, just different varying types of sensors um, for for RIMPAC. Okay. No other no other types of payloads. Um, so describe to me the concept of distributed lethality, because I believe that was one of the things that you've been quoted in in your discussions vis-a-vis uh, -vis RIMPAC and how uh, USVs might be integrated with manned combatant vessels. Um, I'd love to get your, your insight on that. Sure. Um, when you have capability to sense your environment uh, on a uh, Arleigh Burke destroyer, that 
um, sensing capability comes with a pretty defined range, whether it's a radar or an electronic warfare sensor um, or a toad array to try to find a submarine. You have a very defined um, area in which your capability on board indigenously has the ability to search. Um, Arleigh Burke destroyers uh, take multiple years to build and multiple years to crew the over 300 sailors to train them to operate all of the equipment, to maintain it, and to safely navigate at sea. Um, if you were to have an unmanned platform that could sense one or more than one of those domains, on a singular platform that costs a fraction of the cost of a um, destroyer and could connect tactically a larger, much larger swath of water battle space to sense. Therefore, you may have the ability to reach out with kinetic weapons over that distance that you otherwise would not have the ability to execute if it was just your indigenous ship's ability to sense the environment. And that is... Um, at its most sort of basic level, how um, distributed lethality and distributed maritime operations work. It's being able to sense your environment beyond your own scope and being able to fire at things that you can't see yourself. Um, and and that, that is a game changer from uh, an offensive capability. But I would attest that it is more important from a knowing what's in your battle space and being able to sense the environment to not only offensively act, but to defensively posture yourself by knowing what's in the battle space in front of you um, to protect your, your ship full of folks, uh, your man platform. Um, I think that that's critically important. Um, if we do come into time of crisis again, where conflict at sea is, uh, is a thing. Right. And so from your experience this year at RIMPAC, uh, across the four different vessels that you had participating, what are some of the big takeaways that you that you have gleaned? I'm not going to misquote the CNO, um, but USVs are going to be a part of the Navy's future. And we have to find the right blend of platforms, whether it's a uh, large unmanned surface vessel that can do many things and shoot SM6s or different types of missiles um, and smaller platforms that are cost-effective, attritable, and can contribute tactically uh, in a relevant way. Um, that That is where we're moving. And um, it's about finding new ways to work through the acquisition process and new ways to... Um, bring relevant capable platforms to the fleet uh, that's that's effective from a timeliness standpoint um, because the vessels are smaller. They can bring capability, um, but they are not manned. Uh, they, they, or some may be optionally manned. Um, so not all the processes apply to that of a full manned destroyer, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, it, it totally does. And so in the context of unmanned vessels being utilized once a Navy begins to procure an operational unmanned fleet, um, do you kind of see like the sweet spot being kind of in between like the large USV and the medium USVs? I guess it really depends on what you want them to do. But um, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of wondering if you have 
if you have a, a preference, if you're leaning one way or another towards a, a size preference that might be a jack of all trades, for example? So I'm not super, I, I'm not sold on a singular jack of all trades. Um, I, I believe, and this is my personal opinion, um, that for a uh, smaller, a tritable USB that has sea keeping capability, not a small drone, but something that really does truly connect to the integrated networks of a ship. I think that is a very, very important piece um, to deterring an adversary from trying to go on offense or attack. Uh, I think the ability to have kinetic capability on an unmanned ship is almost equally as important, but um, the sensing of the environment is probably the first thing that needs to happen before you are offensively conducting operations. Um, and and, and I, that technology is, you know, as you said, demonstrated two years ago. Um, it's how we employ it and figure out the tactics associated with a larger vessel that has kinetic capability and probably other capabilities as well because it's larger. Um, I think both are potentially equally important. Um, and, and together, I think they face uh, better chances of a deterrent um, for someone that may be considering conducting uh, offensive action to the United States or its partners. And, and just to side note, you know, at RIMPAC, um, my team was fully integrated with uh, Singaporean Sea Combat Commander that I worked for with the destroyer and a two-star Korean admiral in charge of our particular task force. So we are doing this not just at a U.S.-only level, but we are doing this with our partners uh, as we work through these tactics, techniques, and procedures. And just because a, a certain country doesn't have an unmanned surface vessel yet does not mean that they can't learn and train to fight with whoever from whatever nation has unmanned vessels in, in our partner nation group. Um, other types of unmanned vessels, undersea, uh, mine warfare, and how all of those integrate is important. Um, and we are doing it hand in hand with our partners. Um, and I think that's just an important thing to note. So as, as we near our, the end of our time here, uh, Commander, I've got a couple of last questions. One is, um, do you have plans, like was it considered at all during RIMPAC, or do you have plans where you might utilize UAVs deployed from like a large usv um and uh and where are the ships now as rimpac concludes uh where where will they next be heading to so uh the ships will return to port uh both port wanimi and san diego back to where they're from uh currently uh we'll do normal maintenance and we'll do our normal debriefing process um and then back to your other question uh from a uav standpoint um we have not operated to date uh, UAVs from the unmanned vessels. Not to say that can't happen in the future. Um, as you look at pictures of Nomad and Ranger, there is a fair amount of space on the back of the ship to potentially do that. Um, we have not done it to date. Uh, from an interconnected standpoint, uh, there is nothing to say that we couldn't connect with um, unmanned or manned aviation platforms at any point today or in the future. So that, that capability is there. We are interconnected with manned ships, uh, un other unmanned ships, and uh, all of the various types of aircraft that have tactical link capability. Um, we are we are integrating with them uh, as we move this program forward. Beautiful. Well, my last question to you now is: What's next for uh, for unmanned surface vessel division one? 
Well, we've we've created a bit of excitement in a positive way with the operational commanders uh, in the Pacific. Um, we are educating the fleet on what we have and what we're capable of doing. And we're getting their input on where to go moving forward from a capability set. Um, and we're taking that data from the operational commander and communicating that effectively to uh, our leadership at the programmatic level and in Washington, D.C. to inform the acquisition community and senior leaders on, on where, where the operational commander feels we should be moving forward to and finding that right path um, programmatically. So we will continue to conduct exercises with the Navy and continue moving the technology and uh, the, the capability of how and how we will employ the weapons and the different sensors and the ships themselves um, in real world uh, operations uh, as the program of record gets um, brought to fruition. And is there a rough kind of time frame uh, that we're looking at for that, Commander? So I'm I'm not the program office's representative uh, directly. I, I don't want to misspeak out of tune. Um, I'm almost certain that that can be um, pulled from uh, NAVC, uh, but it is in the next handful of years uh, as far as program record um, for unmanned surface vessels uh, to be in the fleet. Beautiful. Beautiful. Well, it's exciting times. And uh, uh, Commander Jeremiah Daly, uh, the commanding officer of Unmanned Surface Vessel Division 1, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me, sir. This has been really enjoyable. I've learned a little bit, and I'm looking forward to re-engaging with you as as you kind of continue your work, because I think it is on the on the cusp of, of new capability, and, and I love that. Well, thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it, and I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you, sir. Have a wonderful day and we look forward to chatting with you again. Take care. Take care. Bye-bye. The views and opinions expressed in this presentation are solely those of the participants. This podcast is copyright and all rights are reserved. No portion may be reproduced or used in any manner without the express written permission of the publisher who can be reached at goboldthepodcast at gmail.com. The music on this podcast is Parasail by Silent Partner.